right. Good morning. Let's put the, could we put those verses up, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 to 8? That's what I'm going to be uh, speaking out of today. And uh, yeah, this is good. Matthew 6, verse 5 through 8. Could we read it together? Should we do that? All right. This is really uh, appropriate for this uh, series on the drunken peasant. I'm not sure what to think, though. Uh, The subject of the drunken peasant came up, and then uh, uh, Justin felt like contacting me to be a part of it. So I I don't know what that has to do with anything. But um, in this passage that we're seeing here, it's, it's Jesus talks about two things that we shouldn't do in prayer. Prayer is the theme of the day today. And he talks about two things that we should not do. And he talks about one thing that we should do. And it ties in with this whole Luther's thought about the drunken peasant. If you take us in our human nature and our own ideas lying on the side of the road, and then here comes God, and God helps us to get up and get into the saddle of the horse where we're supposed to be, and then our human nature can just take us as a drunken peasant right off the other side, and we can end up falling down on the other side. So we tend to go one way or the other in a lot of these issues. And I think it's also true uh, in the area of prayer. There's two sides of the horse. And uh, Justin said there's a third way. And and I think that's where we want to be. We want to be in our lives in that place, being in the spirit and being balanced in different things. The founder of Operation Mobilization, George Verwer, he always talked about balance, being balanced, and that balance is a huge, huge part of the Christian life. And I think in our natural selves, a lot of times we'll tend to veer off one direction or the other. We may be legalistic or we may be, you know, so grace-filled that it really isn't grace. It's sloppy grace, and, and the Lord wants to bring us into that middle place. So let's talk about prayer. The first thing Jesus tells us not to do, he says, Whenever you pray, in verse 5, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. I don't think Jesus is saying we shouldn't pray publicly. I don't think that's the point that he's trying to make. Jesus prayed publicly. He, He would be in the midst of a crowd of people, and he would be praying for sick people. And, and uh, he often prayed publicly. We know that he went into the synagogues and he read the scripture. And I'm sure that he was involved in public prayer. So that's not really what he's talking about here. What he was talking about is our motive is wrong. Our prayer motive becomes hypocritical. And one way that that happens is, As he says there in verse 5, we do it to be seen by people. If our prayer life gets to be in the place where, you know, it's like, you know, it's important to me that people know that I pray and that I'm a righteous man, that I'm a Christian, you know, and I'm going to pray, you know, and if, if the bulk of my prayer life is what I pray publicly, then we could be in danger of moving into hypocrisy. To be honest, I've had times in my life where, that kind of described me. I think I did more praying in churches or in meetings with other Christians than I did in my own life, uh, my, my personal life. And um, it's possible that we can move into hypocrisy um, if that happens. When we're doing it for people, we're doing it to maintain a certain image. In fact, it could be that we almost have like a public prayer language. We, we, we speak and, you know, it's, it's like I'm praying out, oh, oh, Lord, thou in thy mighty power come down from heaven, you know, and I pray that way. Now, if you pray in King James, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with praying in King James. The first Bible I ever read as a Christian was a King James Bible, and it still seems holy to me. When I read the Psalms and the thee and thou, I love it. You know, but there's some people that they think, they think to pray, I have to have a certain language. I have to, it has to be flowery. It has to be something impressive. 
That's what my prayer has to be like. And I think if we get into that, we're kind of edging into a danger zone that Jesus tried to warn us about. I'm not using my normal vocabulary when I pray. It doesn't sound like me. I'm concerned with how people are perceiving the prayer, you know? Is it, is it a good enough prayer? And the sad part about that is that some people then will hold back from prayer. Have you ever met someone who says, oh, I, I don't think I should pray. I'm, I'm a new Christian, and you guys have all been Christians for a long time. I don't know what to say in prayer. And so we can get bound up with those kind of things. If, if we edge into that place where we're really overly concerned with people in how we pray and what our prayer life is all about. I think, and you may disagree with me on this, I think there's a bit of hypocrisy in all of us. Jesus there in that verse was saying, don't be like the hypocrites when you pray. I think there's a little bit of it that can touch us all at different times. We need grace. We need to see when there's hypocrisy in our life, when we're being hypocritical, and we need to move away from it as we recognize it. When we're praying for someone for a certain thing and we recognize that that is not happening in our own life. Okay, the second thing that Jesus tells us not to do, and that's in verse 7 and 8, he tells us not to babble like the idolaters. Interesting instructions from Jesus. I mean... Don't babble. He says, when you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they will be heard for their many words. People who imagine they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. One night in India, I was traveling on an overnight train, and the way the trains are in India, they have six bunks bunks on this side of the bed of the train coach then they have an aisle and on the other side they have two beds and I crawled up into my top berth in my bed and it was going to be an all-night train ride in India and I was getting ready to go to sleep I think it was 10 or 11 o'clock at night and across the aisle in the top berth was an Indian man a Hindu and he kind of sat up in his bed and he got into the lotus position you know he crossed his knees and and uh, he began to pray, and he began to pray very loud, really loud. And uh, he was saying the name of his God, and then he was saying JJ, which means praise, praise. And uh, so I'll just say, for example, he's, the word was spaghetti. You know, it really wasn't spaghetti. Um, some people worship spaghetti, but that wasn't him. Uh, I just don't want to say the name of his, the God he was saying, but he said, Spaghetti JJ, spaghetti JJ, JJ, spaghetti, spaghetti JJ, JJ, spaghetti, spaghetti JJ, spaghetti JJ, 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 spaghetti. And it was loud. It was crazy. And he just kept going on and on and on. He needed one of those self help groups. On and on and on. He didn't get that. Okay. Al-Anon, on and on and on. Okay. It wasn't that funny, maybe. That's another, that's another possibility. So anyway, another day I was down in Washington, D.C. last summer. Walked out of one of the museums out onto the mall, and there was a man there. With, they had tables. They had books. They had a van parked there. He had a sound system and a keyboard. And he was... Um, he was singing, and he was singing, he was chanting the name of Krishna, the Hare Krishnas. A lot of you have probably seen the Hare Krishnas around. They don't seem to be around as much as they were back in the day. But he's, he's, he's chanting the name of Krishna over and over again in his song. One of the ways that Hindus believe you can be saved, there's several ways, but one of the ways is by speaking the name of God by chanting the name of God over and over. It's interesting, in verse 7, Jesus said, they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. 
when you first go into a country where there's a lot of Muslims and you see them praying, it's interesting. You can get really, you can be really impressed. Hundreds or thousands of men bowing down in the streets, bowing down. I'm sure Jay and Sherry may have run into some mosques and this kind of situation in Indonesia. But you look at that, and I've, I've had Christians tell me, it's, man, they pray five times a day. They put us to shame. But, you know, their prayer is all rote. It's, it's certain prayers that they pray. They go, and they, they go through the rote. They, they know when to bow down and when to put their face on the ground and when to raise their hands up. And it's all, it's all scripted. They imagine they will be heard for their many words. What about Christians? Is it possible as Christians we can babble like idolaters? Jesus was probably speaking to his disciples, to God-fearing people when he said that. It'll be the guy who prays more than anyone else, the guy who prays longer than anyone else, the guy who prays louder than anyone else. That can be the person who thinks and imagines that because of his prayer, he will be heard. Pours out an endless stream of verbiage. Really goes to town, endlessly speaking out in prayer. Long, long prayers. As a young guy in YWAM, we were always impressed. We'd read these books about Hudson Taylor and Charles Spurgeon and all these giants of Christian history and we would always like uh, think, wow, do you know Martin Luther used to get up four hours before daylight and pray and seek the Lord? And one morning I was waking up with, I was rooming with another guy. His name was Mike too. We were roommates and we woke up in the morning and we were just getting out of bed and Mike goes, he goes, yeah, you know, they say that John Wesley, next to his bed, there were two ruts in the floor where he would put his knees down. And he prayed so often that there were actual ruts in the floor. Mike looked at me and he goes, he says, I'm kind of like that too, only my rut is in the middle of my mattress. But there's something impressive about long prayers. Long prayer led by the Spirit is good. Long prayers that is a marathon of words might wear you out, who's praying it, and it might wear out God who's listening to it. Although long prayers can be viable and good, they are good. Sometimes we're so emotional about something, we just start praying and we just want to keep praying because it's really we're really feeling the heart of God. We're feeling passion about what we're praying about. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But he's talking about just this sort of endless verbiage going on. Have you ever had a relationship with someone who talks constantly? Have you ever known? Yes, everyone here. You've known a person who talk, 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 talk. When you meet them, they start talking. And, you know, I think of a a lady we used to work with in India, and she was a great evangelist. She led many people to faith in Christ. But she, whenever she would talk to me, within a few minutes she would be preaching to me. And it used to irritate me. It was like, I don't want you to preach to me. You know, let's, uh. Sometimes people are not aware. We're not aware. We're in a prayer meeting with five people, and we have ten minutes to pray. And I take off and I pray for seven minutes. You know, praying for everything under the sun. It's just like totally unaware. What am I doing? Am I impressing people? Or am I edging into that area where I'm babbling like the heathen do? God knows everything. It says there in verse 8, your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. So when I go to prayer, there's nothing I'm going to tell God that He doesn't already know. There's nothing I'm going to tell Him. Sometimes we pray almost like, God, let me set the stage for this. Let me, let me get you out thinking right about this. And here's the background, Lord. And now, you know, here's this. Okay. Then the third thing we want to look at is, is um, 
in verse 6. And this is not Jesus telling us something we shouldn't do, but here Jesus is telling us something we should do in verse 6. You can see it up there in the middle. It says, But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So there's three things about this that Jesus is telling us to do before he goes into the Lord's Prayer, which Laura is going to talk about in just a minute. First of all, he says, go into your private room. Do you have a place? Do you have a time established in your life when you pray? A place to pray. He said, Jesus said, go into your private room. He didn't say, go into the bus terminal, you know. Go into Walmart over by the customer service and find a bench and pray there. Is it possible to pray there? Yes. But he's telling us something here about the nature of prayer. And almost everything I'm saying has a balance to it, okay? If I'm hitting one side, usually there's another balance. Because yes, you can pray in a noisy, chaotic atmosphere. Sometimes you have to. And God shows up. But here Jesus' words were, Go into your private room. A long time ago when we lived in Calcutta, Mother Teresa lived in the city, and I got to meet her a few times. I always tell these stories about her. It made a big impression on me to meet her. And, uh, but she always talked about silence in prayer. And so one day I happened to get a chance to talk to her for a few minutes, and I said, Mother Teresa, what do you mean by silence? in prayer. What are you talking about? I was clueless. I had no idea. When I pray, I go in and I pray. I talk. I tell God, you know, I explain everything to God. And she said, she gave me a two-word answer that I've always remembered. She said, no distractions. That's what it means. Shut your door, Jesus said. He didn't just say, go in your private room. He said, shut your door. Shutting out what Henry Nouwen calls the wordy world. It's a wordy world that we live in, right? Noisy, chaotic, always something going on. We're multitasking. We've always got several things in our mind. We're thinking about tomorrow. We're thinking about later today. Jesus said, go into your private room. Shut the door. No distractions. And be alone with God. Then the second thing Jesus says in that verse, he said, go into your private room, shut your door. Then he says, and pray, and pray. What is the nature of prayer? There's many great books on it. Oh, there's just so much to say about it. I'm just going to say one thing about it. Prayer really boils down to personal relationship with God. It's one-on-one, you and the living God. Laura can't have my personal relationship with God for me. God won't do that. He wants me to know him personally. That is what he desires. So when Jesus said, go into your room and pray, go in and have a conversation with the Father. It's a give and take. Speak to God. And sometimes listen to God. Isn't that what makes a healthy relationship? It's a give and take. Sometimes in a relationship with another person, you have, you're speaking a lot, and sometimes you're listening a lot. It's not always the same. Prayer should not always be the same. Although, if you have a prayer list and a certain time that you pray and a certain order of how you pray and what you pray for, I don't diss that. I I think it's a good thing. My challenge to you, though, is maybe once in a while, mix it up a little bit. Maybe once in a while, yeah, I've been praying like this for a long time, and these people are on my prayer list. Maybe I should pray in a different way this time. Try different things in different seasons. Why? Because you have a dynamic relationship with a person. What's on God's heart today? Do we only ever talk about what's on our heart? Do we ever say, God, what's on your heart today? And then sometimes we have to wait for the answer. 
Then the other thing I see in that verse is it says, um, and pray, it says, to your Father who is in secret. Pray to your Father who is in secret. The secret, undistracted place, waiting on God. That's the place of God's presence. That's the place of God's presence. There is something to be said for silence, for waiting on God. Boy, I'm not good at it. Guys, I'm telling you right now. I sit down. Uh, we were in Pittsburgh last week at a YWAM training center there, and I had everybody wait on the Lord for like 10 minutes and meditate on a scripture. And it took me about eight minutes to quiet my mind to focus on the scripture, you know, out of 10 minutes. So it can feel like, what's the use of this? What's the use of sitting quietly in the presence of God? What about when your daughter or your son or your husband or your wife just comes and sits quietly in your presence? Sometimes it feels pretty good, doesn't it? (laughs) And sometimes they have something to say. And if we're just quiet, they might say it. Your father who is in secret sees in secret and he will reward you. How will God reward you? See, this talks about reward in this, this passage. Up above, he says, um, the people who, the people who uh, pray standing in front of people to be seen by people, he said, they have their reward. So it seems like prayer has a reward. There's a reward to it. What is the reward God wants to reward you with in your life? I don't know. I don't know what the reward is, but I know it will be good because he is good. And so I want to urge us all, let's stay on the horse. Let's not fall off into religiosity of our prayers and try, unconsciously, almost subconsciously, trying to impress people with how we pray and what we know. Let's not fall off to the other side where we go into prayer and we're praying something and then we realize, I'm not even thinking about what I'm praying. I'm just praying words out and I'm not even thinking. Let's stay in the saddle. Let's let God keep us in the saddle waiting on him, having relationship with God. Laura's going to come now and talk about uh, the Lord's Prayer. This will be good. All right. Whenever you pray, here's what not to do, here's what to do. But in, um, in Matthew chapter 6, it's probably the best-known passage of Scripture that we have. I mean, how many people know the Lord's Prayer? We, we all know it. Many of us have grown up in situations where we've said it um, every time we've met together. And it's, it's a really common um, area of scripture. So I, when, I started, when Justin said that, I thought, wow, how do you share about something that everybody knows about? Everybody already, you know, is well acquainted with. So I went to, um, I went to Andrew Murray. And if you look on your If you look on your uh, bulletin, there'll be something um, that I wrote. It's the second part that I took out of his book, and it says, Lord, teach us to pray. Yes, to pray. This is what we need to be taught. Though in its beginnings, prayer is so simple that a feeble child can pray, yet at the same time, the highest and holiest work to which man can rise It is fellowship with the unseen and most holy one. The powers of the eternal world have been placed at its disposal. It is the very essence of true religion, the channel of all blessings, the secret of power and life, not only for ourselves, for the church, for the world. It is to prayer that God has given us the right to take a hold of him, and his strength. So it's something that a small child can pray. We can pray a very basic prayer of salvation, and we can pray our entire lives and never reach the end of it. So it's going to take us a lifetime to learn how to pray. It's going to take us a lifetime with Jesus to press in and to see what is the depth of God. 
Where can we go in prayer? What can we discover about God? What can we discover about ourselves? What can we discover about our world? That's a lifetime quest to be able to really uncover some, even a few of the mysteries of God, even a few of the secrets of God. What are the secrets? What are the mysteries of God? You know, how how do we find them? And I believe it's in the place of prayer. As we begin to discover who God is, it's, as Mike was saying, it's a relationship, right? So we move into relationship with God. And your relationship with a person, if it's six months in, you have one level of relationship. If it's 30 years in, you have a completely different level of relationship with that person. And hopefully you're not speaking the same language that you were in the first six months of that relationship. You want to grow into that relationship with God. So teach us to pray. Um, The Lord's Prayer is in Luke 11. It's also in Matthew 6. And in Luke 11, it says, Now, as it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, this is what you do. And he started in the Lord's Prayer. And then in Matthew 6, it says, in this manner, therefore, pray. So it's like Jesus gives us a model. When you pray, this is what you do. And I think sometimes we've said the Lord's Prayer. I know I have so many times that I don't even think about it anymore. You know, it just becomes words just off the tongue. Um, For a while in India, we were in an Anglican church. And um, it was a Wesleyan church, a church of South India. And every week we had the liturgy. And that was part, the Lord's Prayer was just part of it. So you be, it, it's very easy for something like that to become rote. But if you want to start, it says, In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven. Okay? We can spend a lifetime on those four words. Our Father in heaven. What does it mean that we have a Father in heaven? What does that look like? In the Old Testament, God was seen as holy. Okay, he was seen as holy. He wasn't referred to as Father. So when Jesus comes, he brings us into this whole new relationship with God as Father. And gosh, the Pharisees, they didn't like it. They were angry. They're like, what right do you have to call yourself the son of God? Okay, who do you think you are anyway? And then if you look through the New Testament and the Gospels and the epistles, the the disciples got it. They caught it. That God is our father, that we are adopted into a family. So it goes from being um, a contractual relationship with God into a relationship that's a family relationship that we have a father. Now, granted, some of us um, may have negative connotations that go with father, depending on how we grew up and some of the things that we carry. And sometimes that, that, those are things that may need to be healed until we can really see, because we look at God through that father lens. And those are some of the things that God brings out in our life and allows us, um, as, as we allow him to come in and to start to heal those things. So our father who is in heaven. Okay. Um, also, it's not my father, but it's our father. So many times Jesus called himself the son of God, but now he's including us in that incredible relationship of father, son, Holy Spirit, and us in that Trinity relationship. We are drawn in because it's our father. Okay. okay, this is also from Andrew Murray, and it says the knowledge of God's father love is the first and simplest, but also the last and highest lesson in the school of prayer. It is in the personal relation to the living God and the personal conscious fellowship of love with himself that this prayer begins. 
It is in the knowledge of God's fatherliness revealed by the Holy Spirit that the power of prayer will, found, will be found to root and grow in the infinite tenderness and pity and patience of the infinite Father in his loving readiness to help, to hear, the life of prayer has its joy. So as we begin to discover God as our Father, it takes prayer into a whole new level. All of a sudden, we're talking to our Father. We had, a, um, we had an ESL student from Columbia, and we would have prayer at our base, and she was there, and she would pray. Every time she prayed, she'd say, Daddy, Daddy, it's so good to be in your presence, and Daddy this, and Daddy that. And it just, it just really spoke to my heart because that was her relationship with God. It was that father, that close relationship. So the second part is, hallowed be your name, the next section. So what is God in the Old Testament? He's holy, right? In the New Testament, Jesus brings in God as father. So hallowed be what name? The name of God, our father. It's that link that Matthew starts to provide between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? The Father is revealed in the New Testament. Our Father is holy and he is loved. And the first thing out of our mouths is, you're holy. You're God. You're awesome. You're amazing. And we love you. Usually, or sometimes, we come in and the first thing out of our mouth is, God, here's my list. You know, I pray for this, and I pray for this person, and I pray for, I mean, we we all have our, you know, the things that we're praying for, the burdens that we have. But in this prayer, Jesus takes a step back from our own needs, and he says, hallowed be your name. And then he starts to pray for your kingdom come and your will be done. So what does that look like for the kingdom of God to come into different situations that we pray about? Okay, Matthew's a kingdom guy. Okay, he's talking about the king. He's talking about the kingdom of God. That's what Matthew does. He's, he, he's, his focus is on the kingdom of God. He's introducing the king to the Jews. So that's, that's the book of Matthew. And I think, um, depending on which version you go, but I think kingdom might be like 55 times in the book of Matthew. So he's introducing the kingdom of God to the Jews. And so he starts to introduce the kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Okay? So it's not about my needs and my my issues. It's about God's. What, what, What do you want to see happen? What does it look like for your kingdom to come? Um, Last week we were praying for, I hope I can say this African country right, um, Eritrea. And um, we were sitting in a small group at our base, and somebody said, I feel like we need to pray for Eritrea. And we're all looking at each other, and we're going, Africa, right? You know, I mean, we didn't really know where it was. We didn't know, do you know anything about it? No, I don't know anything about it. Do you know anything about it? No, I don't know anything. So, you know, we get out Google. When you don't know anything, of course, you know, you can ask Google. So we start to look up different things about Eritrea. And um, it's in East Africa. Um, there's human trafficking by Libyan smugglers that, that happens there. There's child soldiers. It's a nation of less than 5 million. It's the third largest group of refugees in the world. It, it, it comes under Syria and Afghanistan. The next one is Eritrea. And people are leaving that country. Um, what is it? Like uh, 3,000 people leave every month from that country. So the first question I had, I said, God, what, you know, because I'm, I'm thinking about the Lord's Prayer this week, right? So the first question I had, I said, God, what does it look like for the kingdom of God to be in Eritrea? What does that look like? What does it look like your kingdom come and your will be done in a place that obviously your kingdom, I don't even know if it's even there, and it's definitely not your will what's happening, you know, in this place. So... You know, then we start to pray about different, about different things. And there's two kinds of prayer, that two basic kinds that you're going to move into. On the one hand, you're going to move into petition. And that's when we have our list and we say, okay, God, these are the things I need to do. And we move into intercession. And that is where we stand in the gap for someone else. 
and maybe even someone else we don't know about. And if that one girl had not said, I feel like we should pray for this country, I wouldn't have ever thought of it. But ever since she said that, it's been on my heart. And I've Googled it a couple times. And I've prayed about different things in that country because now it starts to come into my awareness. So what does it look like for the kingdom of God to come into different situations that we're praying about? And I think that's a good question we can ask God. God, what does it look like for your kingdom in this family situation that's a mess? And what do you want me to pray about? Rather than just say, okay, God, I pray you bless them. Well, the bless me prayers are okay, but, you know, that's in the first six months, right? When you're moving on in your relationship with God, we want to move on from the bless them prayers into something that's a little bit more substantial, so um, I remember um, one time we were in um, Indonesia. It's, it's before Mike and I were married. We went on a team for five months. We wrote letters. Okay, we met each other. Then we wrote letters for a year. It was a snail mail time. I was working in Hong Kong. Mike was working in India. And we decided to go on a team together. And um, it was a six-month team. And those were the teams I was working on in Hong Kong. So Mike came kind of into my world. And we did a six-month team together. We were in Indonesia. Um, I believe it's on uh, Sulawesi. There's a place called Taraja. And in Taraja, all are, it's, it's completely surrounded by, um, by Muslims. But that corner of the island is actually Christo-pagan. Okay? So it's had some Christianity and it's had some paganism. And they're both mixed in the Christianity. And they didn't want to convert to Islam because they liked rice wine. Okay, so there's, there's a lot of different things they did. I mean, you can, you can look it up. It's a fascinating people. One thing, um, one thing they would do is when someone dies, they, um, they keep that body in the house. They embalm that body somehow, and they keep that body in the house for up to a couple years. And then they save up for buffalo. And however many buffalo they can kill then um, uh, that's when they have the, um, the funeral because then the buffalo provide for that person in the afterlife. And it may be a Christian funeral. So it's, it's a real mix of um, religions kind of uh, the, the way that goes. So anyway, what happened is we're on our way to Taraja and we're a great evangelistic team. So we decide halfway there we're going to have an open air. So we do an open air. It's a totally Muslim area. And we've done, we've done a few more in the parks and different places, more low-key, I think. But we thought, okay, we're only here for half an hour. We'll have lunch. We'll do a quick thing, and then we'll be out. So everybody was interested. It would be a great group, everything. And then um, we did this little drama with Jesus on the cross, right? That was a, at that point, it's like the crowd just turned. They got really angry really angry with us. And so we had to leave like immediately. So fast forward, we went to Taraja where we were staying. We were staying in a hotel um, that one of our, one of our YWAMers father owned the hotel there. And we, beautiful hotel, beautiful area. And we had this great schedule set up. We had schools every day and we were going to be able to preach the gospel openly. And um, it was just a really sweet schedule. And Because of that one open air, they came in and they shut down our whole schedule. So we were not allowed to do anything. You know, we were kind of young and not very wise. So anyway, they shut down the whole schedule. So we broke into three teams. And I remember we're just like, okay, we have three weeks here and nothing to do. Nothing set up. Nothing. We had one translator with kind of each one of our little teams And I think Mike took a team, I took a team, and then there's another lady who was actually leading the team, and she took another team. We went three directions, and I thought, so what do you do when you don't know what to do? Well, we ask God, right? That's what we do when we don't know what to do. So we're like, okay, God, here we are. What are we supposed to be doing? And I remember this one guy got a scripture, and it was, um, it's from Acts 10, 19, And it was when Peter got this vision, you know, to go to Cornelius. And it says, when Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, and go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. 
So we're asking God what we're supposed to do, and we're going, okay, does it have to do with three men? You know? And, and I don't, um, and Mike was talking about balance. You do want to have balance in Scripture. I'm not saying that you always pull out Scriptures like this, but it, it, it was just like God was just guiding us right then. And so we're like, okay, what do, what do we do? And finally we decided we're just going to walk down the road and meet three, see if we meet three guys. If we meet three guys, that's who we're supposed to share with. So we got up, we started walking down the road, our team of five, and we weren't on the road for five minutes before this old, broken-down pickup truck stops, and three guys are in the truck. And we're like, you know, they said, they said, we think, they said, you're supposed to come with us, people are waiting for you. And we said, what? They said, people are waiting for you, because we had our translator with us, and he said, you're supposed to come with us. So... Normally, I don't think I would have allowed my team to jump in a pickup truck in Indonesia. But because we had that scripture, we all got in the back of the pickup truck. They took us in town. And we met, um, there was a youth group from the church that was meeting in this kind of garage. So we sat down with them, and they were so open for the gospel. And so we spent three weeks with this youth group. We went to their homes, we went to their churches, and we had this awesome chance to minister to this youth group. So in, in the one hand, it's like one door completely shut, but then God's will led us into a completely different place. So what does the kingdom look like from kingdom perspective, from God's perspective? What does it look like? It doesn't always look like what we think. And then um, we go into... We go into then our petitions, right? Give us this day our daily bread. So after we're asking God about what his will is and what he wants to do, then we move into, okay, these are the things we need. And I think to cultivate a dependence on God, sometimes we don't need God because we can take care of it ourselves. So we, I, I think as Americans especially, we pride ourselves on being very independent. I don't really want to need, need another person. I can do this myself. And I think sometimes we come to God with, well, I don't really need that because I've got that covered. But I think he wants us to ask. And I think he wants us to allow ourselves to get put in a position where we have to move in faith to ask God what it is that we need. Okay, and... Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Okay, that's always kind of big words, right? How does that? But um, as I was thinking about that, one of the biggest things in my life has been uh, a tendency to take offense. To take offense really easy. If someone says something and I don't happen to like what they say or I don't happen to think it's true, or it may be something about me. I may not say something to their face, but, you know, I have a running conversation going on in my head about that person. And even though I may not, you know, on the outside it may look good, but on the inside it's not very good. And it's really easy to take offense. So, um, and forgive us for the times when we offend people and help us, God, not to take offense? What does that look like? There's a lot of things we can put in there. But you know, um, I think it's very easy. We are so easily offended. It doesn't take much to get me offended. And it takes a lot to kind of make up for that. And I believe offense is one of the things, John Bevere speaks about it as the bait of Satan. It's one of those things, it's like a bait that takes you straight into the trap. Because we get offended, and then we dwell on it, and then after a while, it starts to eat away from us, and it's like that trap just closes in, and bam, we're stuck. Because then there's another offense, and then there's another issue, and then there's another issue. So as we start to... Um, Forgive us for our offenses and forgive us for the times we've been offended. Forgive us for the times when we've spoken out of line. One of the biggest studies I had to do was on the power of the tongue. 
because, man, I could be sharp and I could be quick. That's how I grew up, right? I mean, my family are, um, they're believers, but it's a Jewish, uh, my dad came out of a Jewish family. And let me tell you something, we are quick. We, we, can, we can snap it right on. And, okay, forgive me, God, for that loose tongue that just did a whole lot of damage, that just destroyed somebody. And I need to forgive other people as their loose tongue may have shot some arrows that destroyed me. So it's a give and take. And down at the end, it says... Um, The last, I'm sorry, the last scripture in this reading that I had, it says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men, your heavenly father will not forgive you. And friends, we have been forgiven so much. We have been forgiven so much. Who are we not to release forgiveness to someone else? When you think about, that if you are, when we have to forgive, and when we have to forgive, it means that we've been hurt, right? It means there's pain there. Because otherwise you don't have to forgive. So it's not like, oh, I just can forgive that person. It's like, that hurt. That struck deep. And maybe it's an ongoing pain. It may not go away. It may be ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. And it's maybe a daily choice to continue to forgive that person because it may not be a person that we can just shut out of our lives. It may be an hourly choice. It may be a moment-by-moment choice to keep forgiving. But we remember what it is we've been forgiven of, how much has happened on the cross for us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And you know, um, I wanted this, I wanted to, in in some of the newer translations, I I don't know if this last part was not in some of the original um, uh, manuscripts or something, but in our in our cultural Christianity, when we say the Lord's Prayer, I've never said the Lord's Prayer and not had that at the end of it. And so I took the, I went with the new King James Version because that, that keeps that there. And so it says, um, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And three things I believe that we are tempted to touch. Number one, We like to build our own kingdom. Number two, we like to be in charge. And we're not afraid to manipulate the situation so that we can still maintain our in charge. And we like to fix it. And we like to be those people that control our environment. Okay? And we have a tendency to get between God and his glory. That when things go well, to say, yep, did that, right? And it's not that we can't say that, but it's also that that glory belongs to God. So I believe those are three things that we have a tendency to, um, to really touch is God's power, is, is his kingdom, his power, and his glory. And I believe that those are three things that at the end of this prayer, it's like we Put it back on God. Yours is the kingdom. Whatever happens, God, it's yours. It's not mine. I'm not building my kingdom. And if everything, everything falls apart, the whole thing messes up, yours is the kingdom, God. And yours is the power. And I can't fix anybody. And I can't fix any situation. I don't have it in me to be able to do this. And yours is the glory, and I don't ever want to touch it forever and ever. And our perspective is kingdom perspective forever and ever. And so Jesus said, this is how you pray.
This is how we learn to pray. This is how we begin to develop depth in our prayer life, which starts really simple. But as we dive into who God is, there's tremendous depth. There's tremendous, um, it's going to take us our lifetime, our whole lifetime, and all of eternity to begin to understand the depths of the riches of our incredible God. So the Lord's Prayer, very common and on the one hand, and on the other hand, if we take it and use it as a model for where we want to go with God, that's what Jesus said. You can use this as a model. This is how we do it. And I've just touched the very little bit of the surface. There's so much more as we begin to seek God. So I just want to encourage you um, for that one prayer, Lord, teach us to pray. What does it look like, God? What does it look like? What does it look like for me to grow in my prayer life? What does it look like for me to start to discover what is the depths of God, who God is? What does that look like for your kingdom to, um, to be superimposed on the kingdom that I'm living in right now? What does it look like for the kingdom of God to be here on earth? And what is my role and what am I supposed to do? And how do I pray that into existence? And then when we pray it, the next step is we obey it, right? So it's it's both sides. So we we bring it before the Lord, we pray it, and then we obey it. So I'm going to turn it over to Mike, and he's going to lead us into communion. Yeah, Jesus said that we uh, we should pray always and that we should not lose heart. And he's our model. He's our teacher. We all know that he was a consistent prayer. Prayer was an important part of his life. And we want to encourage all of you to uh, make that maybe more than ever in your life, a part of your life. And uh, personally, I think it makes more sense to try to figure out a small step you can take in that direction <laughs> rather than, I'm going to revamp the whole thing. You know, I'm going to do it. Comp- you know, I'm, going to, I'm going to pray four hours every morning like uh, Luther did. You know, if there's something you can do to spend more time in the presence of God, because with Jesus, everything flowed out of his time in prayer with God. And it's the same for us as Christians. In our lives, seeing stuff happen in our lives, it's going to flow out of that relationship with him. So it's good to meditate on these things. We're going to go into communion now. And uh, I think every, almost everybody here probably knows uh, how we do it here at Cornerstone. Uh, Tim and I believe Sherry are going to be serving us today. And uh, we go and we break off, tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the wine and uh, partake of that together. Um, I love that the communion is a central part of our worship here at the church. And it's there where we commune with Jesus. But that communion with Jesus is also with each other. It's like when I'm communing with Josh... We're communing together in Jesus Christ. And so the table is open for you to go, and uh, please do that.